Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. As I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, we'll begin in verse 12. But uh, this chapter begins, as we saw last time, with the assembling of Israel's elders, tribal leaders, and the heads of all the Israelite families. They gather together during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is significant, uh, where they're seeking to be able to uh, celebrate that now they no longer live in um, the feasts, uh, uh, booths, and, and tents, but they, the Lord dwells in a house in their midst, a time of celebration, a time of worship. The ark, which had journeyed with the Israelites since the time in the wilderness, was transported to the temple of the city of David, uh, from the city of David, which is Zion. And the priests and Levites carry the ark. The people sacrifice an abundance of sheep and cattle too numerous to be able to account for. The ark, which is the cherubim-covered lid and the mercy seat, uh, was the earthly throne of God. And and then it comes and is placed in the temple. There's a sense of holy anticipation as it fills the air. The priests bring the ark into the most holy place that that uh, special place that was set apart just for the ark to rest under the wings of the cherubim that spanned the whole width of the, the room. And the ark was so sacred that only the high priest could enter into this inner sanctuary once a year on that day of atonement. And as the ark is positioned beneath the cherubim, the temple is filled with a thick cloud the physical manifestation of God's glory and the cloud is so dense that the priest cannot even continue to stand in the presence of the temple. The glory, uh, the cloud of glory is reminiscent of that cloud which had led the Israelites through the wilderness that covered Mount Sinai during the giving of the Ten Commandments. And now it rests upon where the temple now stands. The glory has filled the temple. And Solomon speaks. He summarizes what has happened in verse 12 and 13 when it says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. The glory of the Lord comes down and not in this light, fluffy cloud that we would think or picture, but as Exodus 24 explains us, this cloud that is like a consuming fire. Solomon describes it as this thick darkness that comes upon them. But then the passage explains something very important. Solomon moves. Solomon shifts his gaze. The actions help us see the movement in the passage as Solomon moves from place to place. And he makes a comment about the temple. But now we see in verse 14 this shift, this change. And the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while the assembly of Israel stood. Why why is this important? Why is this change important? The king turns from looking at the temple which is filled with glory and he turns and he faces the people. 
Not merely that he turns and faces them, but he, he pronounces a blessing upon them. He blesses the people. Now, when we think of maybe a blessing, we might think of something that is future-oriented, that we might have a, a long life, that this long life would be filled with happiness. However, that's not what Solomon does. Without studying it in great detail, what does Solomon focus on is he blesses the people. He focuses not on their life, but on God, on God's promises, God's faithfulness, Solomon's actions, but only as he is fulfilling what God has said he would do. This is very vital to understand that this blessing and a blessing for believers to hear is to focus on what God has done for us. What he has done for us, what he will do for us. When you see this blessing, we focus on who God is and what he has done. This is a basis of what we would call a benediction. When we leave the service after worshiping the Lord, we leave not with our own words to contemplate, but the Lord's words to us. Just as we begin with the Lord's words of a call to worship, we're sent out with a blessing of a benediction. Ironic uh, blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is not about what we have done. It's about what God has done, these promises that we rest in God, these blessings which come from God. Or Hebrews, the famous benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're, we're to disperse, we're to leave, not with our own thoughts and minds and our heads, but leave with God's blessing spoken to us, what He has done, who He is. And that's exactly what Solomon does as he turns and blesses the people. He doesn't focus on their unfaithfulness, doesn't focus on their uh, faithfulness, if there is any, he focuses on what God has done. But we also need to be able to think of this backdrop merely as a visual. That here Solomon is, and Solomon is blessing the people. The people are looking at Solomon, but what is behind Solomon? The image behind Solomon, as he's turned to face the people, is the backdrop is this amazing temple with God's glory that has descended over it covered in this thick, dark cloud of God's glory. As we hear this of what God has done, this is the image that would inspire, encourage, give a sense of fear upon the people. The first aspect of Solomon's blessing as he focuses on God's hand, or his hand, God's hand. He says in verse 15, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying. Solomon, in all of this, in all of the what has done, 
Solomon points and says, God is the one who has carried this out. It is God's hand. Solomon is often the one who gets a lot of the credit. We call it Solomon's temple. But Solomon does not take credit for it. He says that it is God's hand. Solomon had his people working on this, Hiram from Tyre, but Solomon gives all the glory to God for his work with his hands. We see this a very important understanding principle of the kingdom. That God uses people to be able to carry out his work and his will. And Solomon doesn't deny his actions, as we see in verse 21. And I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord he has made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Solomon says that I have provided, I, I was a part of this, but where does all the glory go? The glory goes to God. But here we, he sees the Lord's hand at work in all of this. The provision of materials, the wisdom that he requested, remember back in chapter 3. When he asks, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people who you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Again, Solomon doesn't boast. He realizes that this accomplishment was carried out because God, in fact, gave him wisdom. He answered his prayer. And therefore, all glory, honor goes to God and what he has done. Now, this is not a political thing to do. A king, you would want to take all the glory. You want people to praise you. So if you were then taken off the throne... Well, who would replace this wonderful king who did these great accomplishments? Or if something goes wrong, you don't raise your hand, you blame someone else. You throw them underneath the chariot. But here Solomon shows that God is the one that made it all happen. It is his hand that has done this. Not only is it God's hand, but it's also God's mouth. You see this in verse 15 and 16 who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my day, to David my father, saying, Since this day I brought my people out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over all my people Israel. He sees here the Lord doing a great wonder and a work once more. Notice Solomon gives praise to God as he's blessing the people. The God's hand is the one fulfilling God's promises that he has spoken to David his father by his mouth. Two things quickly to point out here. The first is that Solomon attributes this to God's mouth. But again, that same principle that we saw at work in the first one through his hand is also true in this principle. That, who is it that spoke the promise? The promise is the word the Lord came to Nathan, and Nathan then goes and tells David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Nathan spoke this to David, not the Lord. However, Solomon would say that he has a a God-breathed view of Scripture. 
that God uses men to be able to write and to speak God's word, but he still sees it as God's word. It's not Nathan's enlightened view or recollection of how God spoke or he is interpreted through nature. But Solomon says that the Lord said this to David, although we know it comes through a prophet. The second thing to be able to notice is that this is paired together. God speaking and God doing. God is the one who fulfills his promise to David. We think of often promises as something as a a loose basis. Not much commitment, not much loyalty. But again, that's a human way to be able to view things, that our word is not much when we think about it. We can intend to be able to fulfill all the promises, but in recollection that we are not in control to be able to do all of them. I can promise to be able to go help you in a couple of weeks, but I'm injured. I can't then fulfill my promise. It's not that my intent was uh, negative, but just in all aspects, I'm physically unable to do it. But yet God is unable to be able to deny himself. As Paul points out in Second Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We're in Isaiah chapter 55. Just as rain comes down from the earth to be able to bring forth what it to bring forth in the seed and the sower and the bread to the eater. That God's word goes forth from his mouth. And it doesn't return empty. It accomplishes exactly what God sends it to be able to do. And when we focus on what God has promised, how much of a blessing that is for us. Again, not what we have done, not what we have said, not what we have promised to God, but what God has promised to us. We might be able to turn to a friend and say, think of a time when I have ever let you down. And your loyalty of your past record might stand as a testimony to your promises. But you think how short that is in comparison to God's faithfulness. God has never let us down. He has never failed anyone. Since the beginning of time, he has always been faithful to his promises because he cannot deny himself. His word always comes true. The third thing that Solomon points to is his name, God's name. Verses 16 to 20. Since that day I brought my people out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house. But your son who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. All of this was for God and his glory, his name. This will be known as the house of the Lord. 
very cru- crucial and critical in, in the rest of chapter 8. This covenant-keeping God who revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush. He calls them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage to be able to worship and serve God and Him alone. The third commandment to be able to honor the Lord's name. That this is all brought out that God would be glorified as He says in the third commandment, you shall take... Not take the Lord of your God, the Lord your God in vain, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless for who he takes uh, his name in vain. Or in Psalm 9, verse 10, and those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This is to be able to show and to glorify God's name, a testimony to who God is the one who has revealed himself to his people that they might have a relationship with him. Now when we think even about this, we might already think about God's name and have some connection to Christ, the true temple, the one that's destroyed but three days later is risen again. As um, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 9, after Christ's humiliation... He has his exaltation where Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Solomon continues, continuing to tell the people again what God has done for them. Not just his name, but also his promise. God's promise. Solomon sees this all as fulfilling what God has promised and said he would done, said he would do, and the promise that God made to his father David. In verse 20. And now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord has promised. And I built the house of the name for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now we saw this when we looked at Second uh, Samuel chapter seven. These five main points which God was going to do and promise to David in this time. He explained that this kingdom would come from David's offspring, that this kingdom would be established by God. The kingdom would be built by the offspring. The kingdom would be eternal. The kingdom would be led by God's son, David's offspring. And what we see here is Solomon sees this as a fulfillment of that promise. He thinks it's fulfilled in this time in history. Now even Solomon says that he thinks that his kingdom will be eternal. See this in verse 13. I have indeed built you an exalted house a place for you to dwell forever. Now, to the extent of what Solomon knew, to the promises of this been fulfilled, it's hard for us really to be able to try and fathom. To be able to understand a verse like John eight fifty six, which says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, speaking of Christ. He saw it and was glad. To what extent does Abraham see Christ's day? Well, it's obviously through faith. 
Does he know the name of, of Jesus Christ? Well, it's veiled in the Old Testament to be able to understand that. It's hard to be able to comprehend. Or as the author of Hebrews points out in chapter 4, speaking of the, the people in the wilderness who hear uh, God's voice but harden their hearts in the day of rebellion. He says in verse 2 of chapter 4, The good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So here the author of Hebrews is saying that good news that is proclaimed to the people in the wilderness is the exact same good news that we have, but it just didn't benefit them because they weren't united to it by faith. Do we understand that Abraham had faith to be able to understand this? Again in Hebrews chapter 11. The author explains of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having them seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus made it clear that they were seeking a homeland. And they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That here they live by faith, being able to understand that they they were strangers and exiles, not because they just hadn't gone back to where they were from, but they hadn't received the promise which God had said he would do. But this is exactly what the definition of faith is. The faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's two things that define faith. There's hope, but there's also something that's unseen. That's the definition of faith. That we haven't received it and we don't see it. We haven't received it and we don't see it. So to the extent that Solomon in this time, in in chapter 8, has faith, that he says that God has fulfilled his promise to David my father, it's hard to know. But what we often see is that there's layers in how the promises of God work out in history. That's exactly what the New Testament authors understood in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew writes, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This is only to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So here, Matthew says this, uh, Joseph getting this dream and vision, taking Jesus out of the country, going to Egypt, and then returning after the death of Herod, was to fulfill this promise, this prophet, Hosea, who in chapter 11 said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. I kept sacrificing to the Baals and the burnt offerings to the idols. And here Matthew is saying that this promise here in Hosea is actually speaking of fulfilled in Christ. But Hosea is only thinking about Israel, as you can clearly see. But there's not necessarily two interpretations. 
But if we understand that it's breathed out by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it's fulfilled by the shadow, and then ultimately fulfilled in Christ, as these promises are fulfilled in the New Testament. As you see, all throughout the New Testament, well, one example of this, when we speak of offspring of David, here Solomon is applying it to himself, but the New Testament looks back and doesn't say, it just doesn't speak specifically of Solomon. But this offspring of David, who's going to build the kingdom, Revelation says that I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So here, this promises that are made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the New Testament believes that it is fulfillment in Christ. That's what we exactly saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that all these promises, as Solomon understood them in the, through faith, but ultimately they're speaking about Christ. The Christ is the offspring of David. The Christ was sent to be able to establish God's kingdom. The Christ is the one who will build his house. The Christ reigns for eternity. The Christ is God's son. All of these shadows are fulfilled in Christ as we look back on this moment. Not only his promises, but also God's salvation, his salvation. Finally, Solomon reminds the people that God is the one who has saved them and given them salvation. That they were called out of slavery to be worshippers of God. See this in verse 21. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Here this this fulfillment of this time of, of how far back this goes that here this promise is made. Yes. This covenant that the Lord had made with his people yes. all the way back to when he had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 13 says, And he declared to you this covenant which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. This is what the beginning of the Ten Commandments said, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And here this, this reminder of that God brought them out of the house of slavery to be a separate nation of worshippers of God. That God would come and dwell with them. He would be a holy God dwelling in amongst of a holy people. Through sacrifices, through repentance, through, through the holy priest sanctifying them through day of atonement and their offerings. But here the Ten Commandments is the foundation that they have been freed. They're sons of God. To be able to worship and what's in the Ark of the Covenant, we're reminded in this passage particularly, that it's the Ten Commandments. This covenant is a fulfillment and God is, and the people are being reminded of God's salvation that he has brought them to. John Calvin says, to call upon God is the chief exercise of faith and hope. 
And it is this way that we obtain from God every blessing. That what we understand, if we understand what a blessing truly is, is God and His works and His character and who He is upon His people. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Do we understand that it is what God has done for us And that is the essence of what a blessing is. Deuteronomy 2.7 says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. They were blessed when they walked through the wilderness. Now they're blessed as they see these promises fulfilled that every single blessing comes from God and from God alone. How different that is when we think about being blessed in this life. We think about what we can get, what we have done. But it's all about what He has done, what He gives to us, what He does through His vessels as He blesses His people. And here Solomon is blessing the people, reminding them that this is God's doing. This is God's promises He has spoken through His mouth. This is God's fulfillment of what He has said He would do. It's God's salvation that have brought them thus far. Do not forget it. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.